0: You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of PAS 892, Exemplary Practices in Catholic Teaching and Learning. I have a special treat for you today. I've got Patrick Madrid with us, Uh, but before I introduce him, I'll ask Father Peter uh, if he would lead us in prayer.
2: Father Peter? Sure. Name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I'd like to pray, I invite everyone to pray at Hail Mary for President Dennis DePero, who was the president of St. Bonaventure University until just a little while ago. He died of COVID-19. He's been struggling with COVID-19 since Christmas, and he uh, actually just recently died. Uh, So President Dennis DiPero De of St. Bonaventure University, we pray for him, and we pray for that entire, everybody associated with that university, and all those who have died from COVID-19. If you can join me in prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord Hail is with Mary. thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.
1: Holy Hail Mary, Mary no.
2: Mother of God, pray for pray us.
1: For sinners
2: now, now and our Amen. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of the Apostles for us. Saint Francis of Assisi. Pray for us. I'm Father Menard and Mr. Hector Durand intercede for us. Name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
1: Patrick, uh, you are a man who defies introduction since
2: you're so well known.
1: Uh, so I'll I'll do a very brief one. Welcome Patrick. Patrick Madrid is an American Christian apologist, author, and radio host. And I'm stealing this directly from the first paragraph of your Wikipedia page. One day I hope to have a Wikipedia page, but that has not yet happened, but uh, you have published more books uh, than I can reasonably list here, Um, and these books have sold over one million copies, so Patrick, you're a real um, uh, treasure to our faculty, Uh, you teach at Holy Apostles College and Seminary, a course uh, on apologetics, and in addition to that, you manage to host, you have time to host, a three-hour daily radio program. Unrelevant Radio. This is uh, a real treat for you to be here with us today, Patrick, and uh, it's all yours.
3: Thank you, Sebastian. Thank you, Father, and uh, colleagues. It's nice to meet all of you. Um, I've known you by your names in correspondence, but now to be able to put a face with a name is helpful to me. Uh, Sebastian, I was trying to remember when I started teaching at Holy Apostles. I think it was 10 years ago. Does that sound about right, to you? Uh Two thousand.
1: Yeah, it was a while ago, maybe 2013, uh, possibly was your first semester of 2012.
3: Okay, so maybe I'm uh, misremembering, but it's been a while. So it's been uh, three semesters each year for that number of years. And um, I have certainly enjoyed teaching the students. Um, I think maybe I'll give just a little background and then I'll talk about the course itself uh background wise uh, i'm married we my wife and I have just celebrated our fortieth wedding anniversary. We have eleven children and twenty seven grandchildren and we live in ohio where it's cold and uh we uh we we were originally from California, but we moved to Ohio over twenty years ago and it was a good place to let our children grow up my whole um say the last thirty 33, 34 years uh, of my work has been in the field of apologetics. I was at Catholic Answers for eight years and I worked there um, with Carl Keating just as it was moving from a part-time hobby of his to a full-time company. And so uh, originally, Catholic Answers was just Carl Keating, myself, and one other guy. And now it's grown to a very large and uh, prestigious organization with a radio program and a publishing division and many things that they're doing, none of which was happening when I was there. I consider myself the uh, the equivalent of the guy with the wheelbarrow helping to pour the cement for the foundation that would later support all the great work that Catholic Answers is doing in the meantime. But in those early days, uh, in the late 80s and into the 90s, my job was—I uh, was a contributing editor to the apologetics magazine called This Rock, and uh, they've since changed the title to the Catholic Answers Magazine or Catholic Answers, I guess. Um, there, there was no internet or anything in those days, obviously. So, uh, when I wasn't writing, I was traveling the country speaking, and so my my duties were primarily uh, to present the faith in seminar form, and it was primarily at parishes, but there were some conferences and uh, college visits, things of that nature. And uh, so I did this over and over and over, hundreds, thousands of these events uh, over time. And one of the, the benefits that occurred to me was uh, I we would always have a question and answer session at these events. And so you might have three, four, 500 people, sometimes more than that. Not all of them were friendly to the Catholic Church, so there were times when the local Baptist minister would be there with several of his people, and or Mormon missionaries, or an assortment of different people. So, over the years, what happened was I I had to learn how to answer questions from any direction. I would never know what direction the question was coming from, and that helped me to um, to have a kind of a global a global view of the kind of questions that many people have. And so that was a real help to me, was to be uh, to have to learn how to answer on the fly in a way that would be meaningful for somebody because you can't be too in-depth, but at the same time, you can't be too superficial with the answer. Obviously, you have to give the people something that they can really chew on. So that helped for me an awful lot. Both the writing and also the the seminar barnstorming and answering questions, and about um, let's see, about fourteen years ago, uh, I was invited by Marcus Grody, who hosts the Journey Home program on on EWTN. He was he ha- he was hosting a daily, uh, I'm sorry, a one day a week radio program on EWTN that he wanted to move from he was going to do a different radio program so he called and asked if I'd like to take over the show so I thought sure why not so one day a week for six years I did the Thursday edition of the open line program which was basically another call-in program and after doing that for six years then I got called by the people at uh, Immaculate Heart Radio in uh, California at that time it was a smaller network of about 35-36 and they asked if I would do a daily one hour call in program, uh, which I did for two years. And then they asked me to go to mornings and do a three hour call in program, which is what I've been doing ever since then. So I've been doing that program now for, uh, I think close to eight years, I guess. And, um, it's not as difficult as it sounds. Uh, it's, there's far more material that I have at the end of the show. I can't get to all the material I'd like to get to, uh, But I don't have interviews, I don't have guests, it's just myself and the callers. And it's like doing those seminars all over again, because so many people around the country have lots of apologetics questions. One came in today, for example, a man was talking with his Protestant friend who was telling him that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, where it says that St. Joseph did not know Mary until she brought forth her firstborn son, he was stumped because he said, does that mean that Mary had other children after Christ was born. And that's what his Protestant friend was telling him. So he didn't know how to, how to respond to that. So within five minutes or so, I gave him the textbook answer, and he was super happy. And I can't wait to go back and tell my friend uh, and we'll see what he has to say about that. So it's, um, it's, it's very uh, rewarding, I find very uh, gratifying to be able to help people and, and fix some of these uh, misconceptions and difficulties that they have. So that's by way of background, that, that's what I bring to teaching the course. And uh, so for me, I'm always very excited when I see students at the end of the course, uh, usually they send me an email or in comments and they'll just say how, how deeply it affected them, many of them, because they now not only have a greater appreciation of the faith, but they don't feel, Illities anymore. They don't feel like they uh, can't answer in an effective way. So as far as the course itself is concerned, um, I don't know. I I know you, Father Peter, have looked at the um, the syllabus. In fact, I believe you taught the course one semester and um, hope you enjoyed doing that. It's designed to take the students from no knowledge at all about apologetics, to being able to handle themselves in just about any situation at a reasonable level. And the way uh, I designed the course was to unfold for the students the three um, areas or the three, you might say, categories of apologetics, which are, number one, natural apologetics, and that is the making the case for the existence of God. And what kind of God he is, that he's a loving God, a personal God. He created us out of love and for love. And as you all know, we live in a time of uh, increasingly muscular atheism. And uh, the aggressive atheism that's all around us is really affecting a lot of people. I mean, it's very common now for Catholic families who maybe even have homeschooled their kids to have the teenage son say, Well, I'm not sure if I believe in God anymore because he's been watching YouTube videos that are teaching him why believing in God is superstitious and anti-scientific and all that nonsense. So one of the things I like to do is to use YouTube videos to go in the other direction, especially by showing the students uh, videos of uh, high-powered debates on the existence of God with some of the top atheists out there and watch the atheist arguments crash and burn. It's good for the students to be able to see this as opposed to just telling them, here's what atheists say. Let them actually see the atheist making his case against a qualified Christian apologist, and that's very instructive for them. So I begin with that category, which is the, the field of natural In other words, we use um, the, the cosmos, as St. Paul talks about. We use the cosmos. We use evidence from nature. To make the case that God exists and what kind of God he is. Then the second category, which we move then into, is Christian apologetics. And this does not have anything to do with Catholic Protestant. Sometimes people will see Christian apologetics and Catholic apologetics. Um, it has nothing to do with that division. Rather, Christian apologetics is making the case for the existence of Christ and his divinity. So it would include his historical existence his miracles, his message, and most of all, of course, his resurrection as as proof of his divinity. And then from there, we move into Catholic apologetics, properly so-called, which is to make the case for the uniquely Catholic reality of Christianity. So Christ did not come to establish, as we all know, mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis put it. He established a church, and he endowed that church with certain teachings, certain sacraments, and so these are the the areas of Catholic apologetics that we focus upon. We spend a fair amount of time looking, for example, at the issue of authority and how the Protestant claim from the time of the Protestant Reformation, the claim of sola scriptura, or going by scripture alone, that's a very important part of apologetics in this area and so the students need to master that and understand what is the correct role of scripture in the church and tradition and the magisterium how do these three things function together and the reason we spend a little extra time on that is because once they've mastered that concept and they know how to how to speak about the authority issue and not just assume or accept this um, presupposition that many Catholics find themselves falling into, which is, well, if it's not in the Bible, then it must not be true. You know, what does it say in the Bible to pray to Mary, for example? So I have to, as part of that part of the course, I have to unwind for the students a lot of the things that they have imbibed in the culture, which has been rather heavily Protestantized in the United States. And uh, many Catholics, they, uh, without realizing it, perhaps they're operating according to that, Reformation Principle of Sola Scriptura. So we have to unwind that and explain what tradition is and how it functions with uh, with the Holy Bible and then with the Magisterium. Now the conclusion in terms of the terminus of the arc of, of the course, oddly enough, you may smile when I tell you this, the conclusion of the course is Mormonism. And at first, the typical reaction I get from the students is why Mormonism? I mean, why that of all things? And the reason is because in a very odd sort of way, but it's very convenient for the study of apologetics is that Mormonism requires to respond to Mormonism requires apologetic skill in all three areas. You have to know your natural apologetics because they have a very different belief system when it comes to God. They believe that God is merely one of countless gods, and he's an ever-evolving being who once was a man on a planet somewhere in the solar system. And when he died, his God judged him worthy to become a god. And Mormons believe that they too can become gods of their own planets, their own solar systems. And so I won't belabor the point except to say that it's this very um convenient Kind of a lab experiment for for the students at the end of the of the course because they're going to have to draw upon natural apologetics, Christian apologetics. Who is Jesus? The Mormons believe something entirely different from what we do. They also don't lay claim historically to uh, any connection uh, in a con- continuous sense from the time of the early church to the present. They believe in what's called a total apostasy, and so that is a part of their apologetics. Learning, And then lastly, the Catholic apologetics component as well. So in an odd sort of way, Mormonism is like the perfect final thing to, to study because it pulls in from all of those different areas of the study of apologetics. So that's the kind of the the idea or the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the structure and the idea behind the course. Um, there is... In addition to the exams and the paper, uh, there's also a graded component in the course, which is a final project that is presented by teams. So early in the semester, I have the students form into teams, and then they together research a topic. They send it to me for my approval first, and very often, uh, many students, they they approach it without my follow-up guidance, they they approach it as if they're doing an explanation of some teaching, or they think that it's like a theological reflection on something. And I I say, no, no, no. This is going to be an eight to ten minute or eight to twelve minute presentation. You're going to do it via video. So many students will do it in the form of a YouTube video. Some students do it in the form of just audio. And the goal is to dramatize an apologetic situation in which there's a very clear challenge on a discrete theme and they they role play so the the students are maybe 3 on a team typically one might be the atheist and the other one might be the catholic and the other one might be just a you know somebody who's listening to the discussion so what they're required to do is to take the knowledge that they've gained the techniques and the, the content and then to apply it by way of this final project where they act it out. And every semester I find that as I knew would happen that they really like it. And and they tell me this is not, you know, this is a lot more helpful than I thought it would be. And and I like it too because it not only helps me gain a sense of how much they're really absorbing from the course but also I like it in seeing them realize I can do apologetics I I can do this I, I know how to talk about these issues and uh, it's, it's gratifying for me to kind of see that blossom in many of these students so um, that for me is kind of the little easter egg at the end of the course that um, I realize that the students once they do it and once they look at the other students presentations um, that it, it really helps kind of cap things off on that. And you know what, Sebastian, I apologize, I've lost complete track of time. I don't know if I've gone over my time limit or not. Oh, no, you're right on schedule. So Am um, I- yeah. Okay. So um, th- those are sort of the, the the general ideas that I wanted to present in this um, discussion. Are there other areas that you want me to, to talk about, Sebastian? Or did you want to move to the Q&A section? Well, I think that
1: um, you've given us enough to move to the Q&A, and I'll even start us off with a question.
3: Sure. Um,
1: so I've seen you in a number of audiences, in a number of venues. Um, of the three types you mentioned, who's it easiest to talk with? An atheist, a non-Catholic Christian,
3: or another Catholic? <laughs> I suppose it depends upon the people themselves. Uh, sometimes people can be rather cranky or rather aggressive. Um, i don 't mind talking with people in, in any of the three categories. Um, i i don 't think I have a preference really. Um, it comes down to the other person 's demeanor, so when somebody 's very hostile or aggressive, um, i don 't enjoy those conversations face to face. Oddly enough, though, I do on the radio show. And my, my producer and the sound engineer, they know that if somebody calls in who's really angry and very aggressive, they go to the top of the line because that's good radio. And people, I think, enjoy hearing something that's not so humdrum. But um, I don't know that I really have a preference in those three categories. I take them as they come.
1: Sure. Well, let's uh, see what other questions other people may have. So anybody? Uh, go ahead, Alan. uh I-
3: can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So I'm just curious, like, what your take or how you change maybe. It seems that Pope Francis maybe has different control of apologetics, or at least he wants to tone down maybe the, I don't know, argumentative or dogmatic nature of it and maybe try different ways. I mean, I don't know. How, how do you see his idea of apologetics, and what does that mean to you, I guess? I... Uh, I'm aware that um, Pope Francis has had some, a few comments on it, not much that I have seen. Um, and maybe the ones or two comments that I've seen him make are the extent of it. If there's more to what he's had to say, I'm probably unfamiliar with it. Um, my understanding of what he said is that he, um, he's very negative about what he calls prosely- proselytization, proselytizing people Um, and I know that all of you know that especially in in the American context here that proselytization has a different connotation than evangelization does evangelization which of course is speaking the truth and telling people about Jesus is uh, what we should be doing not trying to coerce or uh, bamboozle people as as some door-to-door missionaries seek to do but prescinding from what you know what his his concerns are, I think, about proselytization, uh, it's a fact that evangelization requires some appeal to apologetics or some use of apologetics because the very sophisticated world that we're in now, highly educated people many different avenues of uh, ideologies that come to us through the media and such, there are countless objections to the gospel. And without having the ability to respond to those objections, then the gospel falls flat on, it falls on deaf ears. In other words, people just, well, I mean, if you can't tell me why it's not anti-scientific to believe in God, why should I bother why you know if you if it, if it's just superstition to believe in God, which many people think, uh, then why should I bother with it so there's no getting around it. Um, apologetics is a, a necessary tool it's not the only tool it's not even the most important tool, but it's a necessary tool I think, and uh, I have a feeling that if I sat down with Pope Francis and we discussed it and I could explain to him how I advocate for a respectful Apologetics approach that is not only respectful of the other person, but it's patient, it's friendly, um, it's charitable, it's kind. Uh, I'm sure he would warm to all of those things. It may be that he, in his mind, has an idea of apologetics that's angry or defensive, uh, strident, and I absolutely am none of those things. And I try to teach the students that if they're going to be effective in apologetics, they have to have that kindness and that respect for the other person. I hope that answers your question. Did that get to the heart of your question? Okay.
1: How do you come across um, as not being defensive uh, if somebody's just like jabbing at you?
3: Well, um, I have, There are certain techniques you can use, and I share these with the students. So when that happens, uh, so somebody's jabbing at me or attacking me, um, I I will, tr- I will throw the person off balance verbally by saying something like, what do you mean by that? So their, their desire is for me to backpedal and to defend myself. So I don't do that. I just say, what do you mean by that? And then after the person kind of restates what his argument is, then I'll say something like, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And he doesn't realize that typically what I'm doing, but what I'm doing is I'm putting the burden of proof back on him. And it's all very friendly and I'm not, I'm not on the defensive. And in fact, uh, now we can move into that Socratic reasoning or the Socratic logic um, or the Socratic method, uh, which is to ask the other person questions in order to, uh, in order, in order to bring to the surface, the uh, error or the problem with his thinking. So, If I if I'm dealing with that kind of person, I use that kind of tactic so that without realizing what's happening, he he's not putting me on the defensive and I can stay calm and and not get, uh, you know, worked up about it. And then um, I can direct the conversation by asking questions. So that's one technique I teach the students, It's not the only one, but I find it very helpful. It keeps things calm and keeps keeps things from spinning out of control, I've found.
1: And that's the key to listening uh, is to uh, be able to uh, uh, to keep the conversation going and to hear what the other person is saying uh, uh, so that uh, you can uh, more adequately uh,
3: uh, engage in a response, I guess. Right. I've written a couple of books on this topic. One is called Search and Rescue and the other one is called um, On a Mission, Lessons from St. Francis to Sales. And in, in each book, I take that that issue of how do you deal with somebody who's angry or aggressive. And um, I use examples of conversations to show the reader how that technique can be mastered. And once you've mastered it, it's very, very handy. And, and it, it allows you to make more progress. I, I have found. Uh, Marianne.
0: Um, in uh Full disclosure, uh, um, I am a a mom to one of your current students, Grace Marie Lacas, who is enjoying your class immensely. I'm
1: glad Um,
0: to hear you. uh, My question is, you've been teaching this course for about a decade. Um, How have you tweaked it? How has it evolved? Um, How has your teaching style changed? Is there anything that you've chucked and said, this just doesn't work? um, And is there anything that you've expanded?
3: Okay, great questions. Um, I I would say that the curriculum has stayed essentially the same, but I've tweaked it along the way, especially in the last oh, probably the last two three years. One example of the tweaking is um, I've I've found a great benefit in the Aquinas 101 videos put out by this Thomistic Institute. Those are the um, the friars of the Dominican or the uh, St. Joseph province in, in the East. And they're typically about five, six minutes long. And they cover a specific topic that is, it's theological in nature and apologetics is not theology, but it's at the service of theology. So one of the tweaks I've been making is in each of the lessons each week, I will drop in one of those videos from the Thomistic Institute so that the student gets a, a solid and, and compact theological understanding of a topic. And that will help them as they are learning how to discuss the topic you know, in an apologetic setting. So. Uh, I've been adding those videos as as um, they've come out and uh, I think the students really like those um, how how has it evolved well uh, one thing I found was that when I would do um, lots and lots of interaction on the Popley, um discussion forums um, it became i thought somewhat um, what's the word i'm looking for it somewhat I think it kind of became somewhat perfunctory because it was um, trying to say something about everything. It was just, I don't think it had the right effect or it didn't have the desired effect that I wanted. So I do make, you know, comments here or there, not on everything. Uh, I want the students to know that I do read everything, but one of the things that I have developed is the, um, we have several, uh, phone call uh, review sessions where they can interact with me directly in real time. And I can answer questions. We go over the course material. I explain, you know, did you notice when you were reading this that this happened or did you see this part? So that evolution or that part of the evolution of the course, I think has been very beneficial and it gives me that much more opportunity to interact with the students directly. And, um, So that's another thing. And I probably by now have forgotten one or two of the other points that you asked. So remind me if you want me to go to any of those.
0: No, you answered my question well. Thank you very much.
3: Sure, you're welcome. Well, importantly,
1: um, the kind of thing that you're uh, teaching us is the the kind of thing we can do in our our own classes, uh, regardless of what subjects we teach. Um, uh, Those of, uh, we have... um, was it 79 faculty at Holy Apostles and were all engaged in teaching um, uh, in the mind of the church. And uh, students from every level um, of our degree programs, from the associates to the bachelors to the masters, are uh, living in a kind of uh, 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 Catholic world where they have to interact with, uh, with non-Catholics, with the secular society on a regular basis. And uh, they're they're missionaries, uh, even if they don't uh, intend to be simply because they're here <laughs> and uh, and we're teaching. Um, we're teaching in the light of our faith. That's uh, so uh, what you're providing them is very useful for them to be able to move beyond uh, back into the world. Um, what advice would you have for uh, the rest of the faculty uh, to 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 help share with students how they can be part of that light
3: in the society in which we live? Ooh, well, I, I don't know that I'm um, capable of um, giving advice to my colleagues on the faculty, um, some of whom have been teaching a lot longer than I have, um, but for what it's worth, I find that having these um, these conference call review sessions seems to be a really good thing i don't know how many other professors do that Uh, i'm under the impression that probably most of them don't but um for me it it adds more of a personal contact with the students and they seem to like it and um, i want them to feel that at the end of the course um that they had that kind of um more personal mentorship mentoring that they wouldn't get if it was just on the screen looking at the um the discussions so if I could offer any advice it would be that seems to work well for me and uh, it might be worth trying for other other faculty members
1: sure and in this age of um, COVID-19 where zoom has become our reality um, this has become like um, a common hat you know to uh, to many of us who will uh, engage our students in this way when we couldn't engage them in other ways
3: that's true yeah thank god for the technology
1: well uh speaking of the technology, you mentioned earlier media you know when uh, uh kids watching YouTube channels that uh that uh, uh evangelize if you will atheism and uh, they start to uh, map themselves onto it and you suggested that there are ways that we uh can uh, assist students uh to find good materials in the media um, What should we be producing uh, I don't know if we can compete with some of these uh youtube uh Uh, stars who have a million views and a million subscribers and you know they're uh, they're embracing the culture and they're evangelizing that culture Um, what do you think we could do to uh, make uh, to counterbalance that a bit
3: well making videos is a very good delivery system for students because first of all they're already on their phones anyway Almost everybody is anyway. And the younger they are, the more likely it is that they're already watching videos anyway. YouTube videos, now there's TikTok and the other, you know, th- those are just silly, um, you know, the TikTok videos and things. But there's a great deal of depth that you can give somebody on YouTube videos and it's free. So um, for, my, for my thinking, that's where we should be in a bigger way. So uh, faculty who can, produce these videos uh it won't be just for the students but other people will find them and be helped by them as well i'll give you a quick example i teach every summer at the defending the faith conference at franciscan university it's their big apologetics um, weekend conference and um, i've been doing it now uh, well i've been doing it steadily for about the last 20 years every single year except for last year of course with covid Uh, but the very first one i did was in 1990 and uh, a few years ago, maybe three years ago or so, I did a mock debate with Father Mike Schmitz mm-hmm. on uh, so- so-called same-sex marriage, and I took the I took the uh, position of defending same-sex marriage, which I do not believe in, obviously, but I took the position of defending it. So I did all the due diligence. I, I I watched the YouTube videos of the people who do defend it. I read their books. I read their articles. And I tried to steep myself in the arguments in favor of same-sex marriage. And Father Mike Schmitz, of course, he defended the church's teaching on traditional marriage. And that has been on YouTube now for a couple of years, two, three years. And the last I checked it, it had like a quarter of a million views, and uh, who knows how many people who were probably not even looking for the church's teaching on this issue found that. And um, I've heard a lot of good responses from people who say that it really helped them understand how to explain the church's teaching on this very vexing issue for many people. So to answer your question in a sort of roundabout way, Sebastian, I would say uh, the more of those kinds of offerings we as faculty can produce and just put them out there, the better it is. And I think that's the best way to counteract a lot of these other messages is to present the truth in a way that people can really think about and evaluate.
1: That's a very Thomistic thing you did to uh, be able to state the argument of the opposition, perhaps even better than the opposition can state it, You know, so that you know exactly I, what you're getting.
3: Well, I wanted to be sure that it wasn't a straw man. So it, it had to be as robust as I could give, as I could make it in the time that we had. And so uh, my, the fact that I don't believe that didn't stop me from trying to make the strongest case I could. Um, before, I mean, just before we did the debate, there was actually a little bit of concern. I was going through it with Scott Hahn, and there was a little bit of concern that maybe I was going to make the case too strong, but um, Father Mike Schmitz did a very good job of refuting the strong case that I made.
1: Certainly. Well, um, we live in a society where uh, LGBT is increasing in its impact, especially with the younger generation.
3: Um, I just had on the show this morning. uh, It's uh, the, whatever the youngest generation is, Gen Z or Gen, Gen, whatever uh, it's now up to 16% of that population identifies as LGBT Q, if if they add that letter, and just by way of comparison, my generation—I'm at the at the end of the baby boom generation. I was born in 1960. Uh, my generation is about two percent, and the pre-baby boom generation is like 1.2 um, percent. So you see a dramatic increase in the number of people in these different population cohorts identifying now with with the youngest ones, identifying as uh, LGBT. Uh, So there's an example of a topic that came up on the radio program just this morning.
1: Well, I'm looking at a quote from the Daily Wire. The numbers are exactly what you've said. Um, The uh, baby boomers, uh, the percentage of people who self-identified as LGBT among Generation X, so that's my generation, born between 1965 and 1980, was 3.8%. Baby boomers is 2%. That's 1946 to 1964, and you've given a number less than that, for the generation that was prior to them. I think they're 0.3 or 1.4, something like that. That's, so there's an increase. It's almost like it's a fad, like it's on the rise. The millennials, uh, 9.1% of them identify as LGBT, and for Generation Z, or those born since 1997, and who knows about Generation Alpha, which I hear was born after 2015, but uh, the new uh, uh, Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary would allow them at three and four years of age to enter into gender reassignment surgery, you know, you know, and to self-elect at that age um, when when they can't even identify perhaps uh, whether or not they want white milk or chocolate milk, you know, for lunch. Um, and then sixteen percent, fifteen point nine percent of Generation Z self-identifies. So do you see? Um, is this is this simply a uh, uh, a fad is it, is it something that catholic apologetics uh has an answer to uh yes could apologetics resolve
3: this well resolving it is not um it's resolving this is not like resolving whether or not we can prove that mary did not have other children or that there's one god in three persons that's a different kind of resolution as you know, um, because here we're dealing with the person, so the psychology, emotions, peer pressure, um, unruly physical appetites, virtue, vice, I mean, all those things that go into it that in, in many apologetics discussions, those are really not, you know, present. Uh, human psychology is always present, I think, in any apologetics endeavor. But more so this, and because it's sexual in nature, it's all the more powerful and um there's a there's a strange attraction that it seems to exert on uh on people and um i find it very very troubling and very dangerous so uh, i really do believe that to whatever extent we've got some apologetics in that area we need a whole lot more and we need people who are well trained to be able to speak the truth and love to the modern world that is um, becoming increasingly hostile to to that we we see that as a precursor i think with same-sex marriage and uh with the whole alternative lifestyle uh debates uh that are more it's more or less settled debate now in the minds of most people it's just it just it's a given now that this is a viable way for people to act now um and so we we have not I don't think we've, I I would say we have largely failed in that area when it comes to apologetics to the culture. So I'm hopeful that some of these students that are taking this course will take the baton and go further and become the new voices going forward to help speak the truth and love to this very confused generation. Sure. Sebastian?
0: On that same point, with the um, um, LGBT uh, prevalence and the, the change, um, in addition to the question as to whether it's a fad, I, I think we're also living in a post-humane vitae, post-birth control, supersaturated hormonal, uh, synthetic hormonal world, and we may find that some of the 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 culprit may be drinking water, maybe hormones that are, you know, out there that change the way we think, change the way perception is, uh, um, is perceived. Um, Just, just a thought.
3: What do you think about that, Patrick? I think that's very insightful. Um, Very insightful indeed. I had not considered that as a motive, or an influence in, in this area. Um, The the furthest I've ever gotten with that idea is talking about the possible correlation between the hormonal uh, contraceptives that so many women take and how that gets into the groundwater and how that is not filtered out in the, in the water treatment plants. And it affects fish, for example. So we see strange anomalies in fish, intersex fish things of that nature so i've i've been able to work with that argument in that area but it never occurred to me that it may have some role to play in this this skyrocketing of experimentation very interesting
0: i've been watching this for a while and i am convinced that there is a role there
3: hmm. that is fascinating I, i'll have to do some more study on that if do you have do you recommend any sources
0: let me get in touch with you privately, um, okay. and we can continue the conversation and share sources.
3: Okay, I'd appreciate
1: that. Thank you. Uh, Marianne, professionally, is a bioethicist, so um, that, this uh-huh. is her field expertise. So uh, thank what? you um, for, bringing, uh, for bringing that up. Um, we live in a, um, in a world, uh, in a country, where our Sunday Visitor Institute identified, I think last year or the year before, uh, that there were fifty six million Americans who self identified as non religiously affiliated uh they 're called nuns you uh, know um, uh, wonder if there's a correlation between that number and this other number of l g b t uh q i a you know or you extend the uh the initials out as far as they can go um, and uh you know whether or not I know that the church has done some work. And Holy Apostles is actually having this Saturday morning, if you're available, uh, a conference, um, a webinar, not Holy Apostles, I'm sorry, the Institute for Theological Encounter with Science and Technology. I get my uh, organizations mixed up sometimes. Um, so we're having a, a a webinar with the head of Courage, Father Bosh, uh, Boshansky, and uh, Dr. Paul Ruse. Uh, and both of them are going to talk about uh, this phenomenon of gender dysphoria. It seems to have uh, swept across our country. So, um, but the church is doing things um, uh, where it's actively engaging l LG- people who self-identify as LGBTQIA. I, could, are there things that we could do better? I guess. Um,
3: uh, I don't know. I'm sure there are always things we could do better. <laughs> um, I hear from parents on a regular basis on my program who are just beside themselves because the 13 year old daughter has just announced that she likes girls or that she's bisexual. That seems to be the more common um, form that this takes. And the parents are just bewildered and they don't know. I mean, we raised her in a good home. We pray before meals, mass every Sunday, you know, the, checking off all the boxes that you would think and I try to help them see it's not you. you. You didn't do anything wrong. And you you tried as hard as you could to raise your children. It's the toxic environment. And the way that this is um, peer pressured into them through the media, through the through the music and through the, the videos and things like that. I mean, just what was it? I don't know how long ago it was, but there was a famous song. Uh, and who is the name of the singer? Um Katy Perry. Uh, and I don't know the music of any of these people, but I I mean I I hear their names. I hear Taylor Swift and other. So Katy Perry came out with a song some years ago called I Kissed a Girl and I Like It and I Liked It. And that was a super big hit. And and all the the young kids knew that song. Well, that can't help but suggest to somebody, well, maybe I should try that. You know, maybe, you know, if if Katy Perry liked it, maybe I should try it. So there's so much suggestion. Some of it's subliminal, a lot of it's overt. And because it's now glorified and and protected and enshrined in in, in not not just our culture, but also now more and more in our laws, that glorification of this, I think for some people, maybe many of them, it leads them to want to be more, um, maybe I'll be more popular if I identify this way. Maybe I'll be more accept it I'll be in with the in crowd if I do this. I don't know that it's necessarily they're feeling driven by a sexual appetite to do this, but they see that there are advantages socially if you are in you become an untouchable person. You become beyond criticism and you have a special status if you identify in this regard and um I think that's another huge problem and I don't know how apologetics can necessarily uh, defuse that but um oh it's just when I think of it I just there's so much work that needs to be done and uh we need more people <laughs> studying apologetics how sure. to do that.
1: well um yeah other questions I could keep going all day I could do this with you all day Patrick
4: <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll, ask, I'll ask one uh, sure. this, it's it's a two-part kind of a question or a response, at least to one of the things you said, Sebastian, about how Holy Apostles is, uh, you know, we're educating people for missionary work. And those of you who have been on campus and, and as you leave the campus, you'll see a sign that says entering missionary territory. So we're we're very keen on the fact that we do need apologetics as well as evangelization. Um And so, your course sounds wonderful. I really like your art of apologetics in the sense where you give us a couple of techniques and Of course, the hot button is we have we all have emotions, and many times we tend to confront uh, individuals who don't share our beliefs with emotions and so, I like your cool head um your technique about what saying what do you mean you know and then later on, after you get them to speak a little bit. You know, how did you arrive at that idea, etc.? Do you have any other suggestions?
3: Yeah, um, well, there's a whole book that I didn't write uh, that goes into that. Uh, it's called uh, Tactics by Greg Kokel. He's a Protestant apologist. Now, this book doesn't get into any theological issues at all. So it's just purely dealing with, you know, the rhetoric side of things. Um, I encourage my students um, to practice and practice in a couple of ways. So one is to, when you hear or see something, uh, I, I tell them, you know, just stop and pause for a minute and ask yourself, how would I answer this question? What would I say in response to it? And that way you'll, you'll be thinking about these things so that when you do run into a, a challenge or a question like that, you won't be flat footed. You will have already thought about things like that. And then the second way is to not, to not shy away from real life conversations and to make use of those conversations, to learn what are some things that work, what things don't work. That's, that was a big help to me as I was coming up through the ranks in the world of apologetics. I began to uh, discard certain techniques or certain things that I realized they just don't work. And then I began to adopt things that did. Uh, So practice really does make perfect. I think in that regard, Um, but it, but it really is, it, it will take a different form for different people. So, like, um, maybe it's only occasionally that somebody would run into a challenge just because, you know, like the housewife maybe is not going to run into that very often the way somebody at a college campus might run into it. So I encourage the students to just, each in their own way, according to their own temperament, to try to cultivate that idea so that when you are in these, these challenging situations, you'll know uh, a few other, a few other examples. Um, if that's what you, if that's what you meant, Claire, th- is that what you mean? Like some other examples?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, okay. because uh, you know, the other part of my question is um, I don't know. Um, apo- I apologize for this. Is it, is this a graduate level course that you're teaching or is it open to anybody? Because- it's
3: open both undergraduates and graduates, but I think the preponderance of, of students are undergraduates. Okay. It's a 500 level course. Is that a 500 level? I think it is. Okay. Um, it, it Give me one second. I'm just going to open my screen. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it's a 512 course. Okay.
4: Yeah, so, part of my question was, do you um, prefer, do you think students benefit after a certain level in the sense that there's no prerequisite for apologetics. So is it better for them to have X number of courses in particular subjects before they take an yeah. apologetics or is it anybody who's grown up in the faith?
3: That's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, thus far, at least it has not required any preparatory med- courses. If if I, if I could suggest one, it would be to take a, a logic course in, um, in philosophy. And for that matter, I would say a logic course and an epistemology course. Both of those two courses would be good preparation for apologetics and it would just help them do better at it. Um, many people take the course. They have no background at all. So the course is geared for that person. Um, if I were to make it more, if I if I were to um, have students that had some of that background going into it, then the course could become more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that the average student could accommodate that without some of those tools, you know, the prerequisite courses. Sure,
4: um, yeah, because you know you you mentioned the book tactics, and of course logic and logical discernment you know, speaking of St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, <laughs> where we have a yeah. certain level of communication. So, um, you know, perhaps maybe on a, on a more graduate level, you might be able to get that type of student and then you could pursue. But I'm sure when you teach your course, you base it also on the participants within each course.
3: Yes. Um, the, the course itself um, seems to appeal to a wide array of people. Um, we do have a quite a few. And I, I think that Sebastian would have the details on this that I don't, but I believe we have quite a few personal enrichment students, if I'm not mistaken. We do. That, yeah. And,
1: and, th- and thanks to you, because uh, they come through um, uh, your program when they hear you on Relevant Radio talking about your course. They show up uh, in our admissions office saying, hey, I'd like to take that. Awesome. That makes me happy
3: because uh, pe- people are hungry. for; They want to know more so, um, yeah, I think that that course, I think that course uh, feeds that appetite that people have. Um, I'm trying to remember now, was there some, some, oh, was I going to give another example of like a technique? Is that?
4: If you have the time, sure. I'd love yes. to hear
3: it. No, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, okay. In the world of apologetics uh, with Protestants. Uh-huh. There is a, there are a few really good techniques that are surefire. If you ask me, one is uh, on the authority issue. Is the the Catholic needs to understand that the 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 extremely weak link in the Protestant chain is sola scriptura. You just tug on it, it's going to snap. And most Catholics have no clue that they have this available to them so the the examples of this would be somebody says um well purgatory or praying to mary or something where's that in the bible i I don't believe that and it's not in the bible and of course the presupposition behind that is if it's not in the bible then you shouldn't accept it because it's it's unbiblical in some sense Mm -hmm. and so the best way a catholic can deal with that is to say okay well i'll be happy to show you some evidence for this, but I first would like you to show me where I where the Bible says I have to. And it's an odd question that the president has never heard before. And he'll say, what do you mean? Uh, well, do I understand you correctly? You're saying that you only accept those teachings that are found in the Bible. And if somebody says, here, believe this teaching, and if you can't find it in the Bible, that you should reject it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So then say, well, where is that teaching in the Bible? Where is the t- <laughs> You must only go by the teachings that are found in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's not there. The Bible nowhere claims that you have to go by the Bible alone. The Bible nowhere says that you have to prove anything from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's such a mind-blowing concept. It's kind of like jujitsu, where the, the Protestant is not expecting that. And once the Catholic becomes adept, even just at a basic level of pointing that out, then you can say, "So, so you're... You're insisting on the very principle that you deny. Okay, that so that's one technique. Mm-hmm. Another technique would be to say, um, how do you know which books belong in the Bible? Now, sometimes they'll open it up and say, well, it says right here, you know, these are the books that belong in the Bible. But, yeah, but how do you know which ones belong in the Bible? How do you know that Matthew belongs in the Bible? And there's no real good answer for that. And the point here is for the Catholic to say, You believe in going by the Bible alone, right? You only accept those things that are taught in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Where does the Bible tell you which books belong in the Bible? Nowhere. There's no inspired table of contents. There's, you, you can't go by the Bible alone and even know what's, what, what the Bible is. In order to even know what the Bible is, you have to accept divine revelation that comes through the church, not through the Bible. So it's a, it's a, it's a self, um, it's a self-refuting proposition to say I go by the Bible alone. And all the Catholic needs to do to point this out is to say, well, that's impossible because you can't even know what the New Testament is if you don't accept an authority outside of the Bible, namely the church. So there's another example. I'll give you one more. and I, I don't want to <laughs> bore you. Um, another one, this, this, has to do, this actually was a real conversation I have with two Calvinists. And they were telling me uh, that I was interpreting the Bible wrong. And I said, no, you're interpreting the Bible wrong. And they said, no, you're interpreting the Bible wrong. So we, it was a it was a uh, – I'm half Mexican, so I'll say this. It was a Mexican standoff where, you know, neither of us could, you know, make make any progress. And so I took the napkin. We were at a restaurant. And I took my napkin out, and I wrote down on the napkin uh, six words. And I, I teach my students. I teach people how to do this. So the words I wrote down were, I never said you stole money. And I pushed a napkin in front of the two guys and I said, okay, do you understand what I mean by this? And they said, yeah. I said, read it again. I never said you stole money. Do you know what I mean by this? Yes. And so for effect, a, a third time I said, are you sure you know what I mean by this? And they said, yes, what's your point? I said, okay, my point is, did I mean, I never said you stole money implying that somebody else said it, but I didn't say it. Or did I mean, I never said you stole money, I thought it, but I never actually said it, or did I mean I never said you stole money, or did I mean I never said you stole money, or did I mean I never said you stole money, you stole something else, but I didn't say it was money, so, so with the rhetorical flourish then I say, okay, so I just wrote down six simple words in our common language in your presence, and you're telling me that you are, on the one hand, guaranteed to know the meaning of Scripture, and yet you can't tell me what I meant by six words written on a napkin. And it was mind-blowing for these guys the conversation just sort of ended there but the reason i know it was mind blowing and i'll leave it at this is because about six months later one of the two guys came to one of my events somewhere else and he said you remember that thing you did with the napkin and i said yes he says well that was like a, a key that unlocked the door of my mind he was an ex Catholic. he said when you when you did that he says, i realized i i did not know how to answer that argument So I started going back and thinking about and looking at, like, what did the early church teach about these issues? And he said, once I did that, then I realized that I need to come home to the Catholic Church. And uh, so that's another little technique. I'll leave it at that. But that's another kind of technique I try to teach uh, in the course so that the students have lots of little things they can use to help them uh, circumvent brick walls. Thank you. On the issue of uh, sola scriptura, too, like, wouldn't it be the case that a lot of Protestants they themselves embrace teachings and aren't in the Bible, like in the yeah. moral realm or other areas? I mean, that's kind of one thing I kind of seems to be the case. Yeah, that's a good insight. Um, I agree with you. For example, uh, contraception, you know, it's in the Bible, Onan, Genesis 38, uh, but most Protestants they're, like, oblivious to it, and contraception is fine. Divorce and remarriage is another example. So there there are many, many things that, um, even though they claim to go by the Bible alone, you know, they still wind up latching on to things that are clearly biblically false. Yeah, and I'm thinking, like, the like a lot of them uh, prohibit alcohol, or some of them, anyway, and I don't right. know if there's a biblical basis for that, even, so... Well, one of my favorite chapters is in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 34, I believe, where it says, I love using this verse with people who say that uh, drinking alcohol is a sin. Now, drunkenness, obviously, is a sin, as we know, but not drinking alcohol. And I point out that Jesus' first public miracle was to make alcohol. He himself drank alcohol um, in the form of wine. But I love to use this passage from Deuteronomy, where God is speaking here, uh, saying that Every year you have to come to Jerusalem to pay your tithe. But if it's too far for you to go, or for whatever reason you can't make the trip, then what I want you to do is to take the tithe and exchange it for food or wine or strong drink. And then with your family, he says, and then with your family, make merry before the Lord your God. And so here we have God actually saying, get some wine and have a party. You know, and it just—it's really neat when you see how uh, I think anyway. How how somebody who maybe considers himself a Bible believing Protestant and has no clue that that passage is in there, and uh, I don't know—it's—it's it's, apologetics can be fun too. Uh, it's not grim. It doesn't have to be anywhere.
1: Well, um, we've been we've been with you for a full hour, Patrick, and I would just like to end with a commercial. Anybody sure. can. Say- your course and be with you for three and a half months. <laughs> what a blessing and a gift you are to this school <laughs> to, um, and to thank our students.
3: Yeah. Thank you. My thanks to all of you. I appreciate the opportunity to interact with you.
1: Well, uh, we have uh, Marianne is going to uh, close us in prayer. Uh, Marianne.
0: God in the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear God in heaven, thank you for gathering us here with Patrick Madrid to learn from his expertise and, the expertise in teaching apologetics. Thank you for the gift Patrick brings to our institution. Please continue to bless his ministry and his family. Please enable us to listen and better respond to the needs of our students as we seek to equip them with the knowledge and the skill to defend the truth, beauty, and goodness of the Catholic faith in a changing world. We ask this through the intercession of the ever-blessed and all-immaculate Blessed Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
1: amen Amen. thank you marianne i think you had it right expert teach uh, (laughs) thank you Pat.
3: thank you bye everybody all right god bless
0: hello god's beloved i'm annabelle mosley author professor of theology and host of then sings my soul and destination sainthood on wcat radio i invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.